confidence starts with loving who you are. And when your skin feels nourished and glows on the outside, you naturally radiate confidence from the inside. Give your skin a glow up with Osea's clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This ultra-hydrating body care features two of Osea's bestsellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. These seaweed-powered heroes use skincare-level ingredients normally reserved for your face for results you can see and confidence you can feel. Osea has been making clean, clinically proven seaweed-infused face and body care products for over 28 years. This luxurious skincare is vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com, code GLOW. Hello and welcome to the interview. I'm Ada McLaughlin, the editor-in-chief of Mediaite. This week, I'm speaking with tech reporter Taylor Lorenz. She is a prolific journalist who's reporting on influencer culture and social media trends at the New York Times, has earned her a large following. Taylor announced earlier this month that she's leaving the Times for the Washington Post, where she will continue to cover the internet, but with a wider purview. Felt like at the Times, it's such a big and amazing organization, and I loved the team that I was on, but I didn't just want to write articles. Like, I want to do a lot more. I called up Taylor this week to discuss her move to The Washington Post, her experience at The New York Times, how she deals with online harassment from YouTubers and attacks from cable news hosts like Tucker Carlson, covering Gen Z and whether the kids are all right. Taylor, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. First of all, congratulations on the new gig. That's very exciting. Thanks. I'm really excited. Now, you were one of the most, I'd say, prominent reporters at the New York Times, which is obviously a, a pretty historic institution. What made you want to leave there and go to the Washington Post? Yeah, I wasn't necessarily actively looking to leave at all, um, but the Post reached out and kind of offered me this dream position. Um, one thing that was hard at the New York Times is, well, I, you know, I have a background in multimedia and I was a social media uh, director for many years. I ran the video team um, at one publication. I had a Snapchat show. I like to do a lot. Like I, I love reporting and writing, but I also love kind of not just writing, but doing kind of other types of reporting. Um, and I felt like at the times it's such a big and amazing organization. And I loved the team that I was on in terms of writing articles, but I didn't just want to write articles. Like I want to do a lot more. Um, and so uh, the post, you know, has always been like really on it in terms of digital. Like they're, mm -hmm. they're definitely the, the people that are like signing up for accounts early on these platforms. And so I always notice them there. Um, and then- They were quite famously on, on TikTok pretty I know, early, right? I know, I know. My TikTok strategy is different than theirs, but I know Dave sure. does his thing. Um, <laughs> I, I, you know- but it's, yeah, I just like, I kind of had knew, knew that they had authority in that space. And also just that they, they like gave their writers a little bit more like breath to like do more stuff. Um, and I wanted to do more. Mm -hmm. It's funny because I remember when I joined the Times and um, my one a colleague of mine was like, you did it. Like, this is the top. And I was like, 
writing articles is not the top for me. <laughs> like, <Yeah>. I mean, <laughs> it's amazing. And I think if that is your career path, that is, you know, I, I can see how, you know, being at any of these institutions is, is amazing. And I'm so grateful to even like be at any of them. Um, but I, you know, I want to do more than just write articles. So. Now, now we, but before we get into what that more is, uh, could you explain your beat to us a little yeah. bit? Because it's, it's a fairly unique one. You've covered a lot of stuff, particularly at the times that hadn't been covered before by, uh, you know, century old prestige publication like that. So like, could you explain to us what you, what you cover? Yeah. Um, it's funny. I remember the times was like aggressively recruiting me from the Atlantic. And I was like, are you guys sure? Like, you know what I've written about. <laughs> I made them go through like every single story I'd written. And I was like, could I write this at the times? Could I write this at the times? Like, could I say this at the times? Um, and yeah, but I, I mean, it was great. I loved, I, I had two amazing editors, um, there who really got my beat, um, which I would describe as kind of, people describe it as internet culture. I don't really just, I mean, it's, that's definitely like the buzzword, but I kind of describe it as um, like technology. I mean, I mean, I'm a tech reporter, but I cover communication and connection kind of any ways that people are using tech products to um, communicate and connect with other people. So that can be like using Google Docs to like chat and pass notes in class or Zoom. You know, I wrote about a bunch about Zoom and, and sort of norms on Zoom in the early pandemic, or it could be TikTok or these big social platforms. I definitely have been writing a long time about the online creator influencer world, um, which is basically just users connecting at scale. Um, and so that's kind of also a core part of my beat. How did you get into that? It's a long beat? answer, sorry. <laughs> no, that's fine. How did you get um, into it? Like, was it, it was this always something you wanted to do or did you sort of find your way? Well, it was something I wanted to do since probably 2009. So in 2009, I got on Tumblr. Um, shout out to Kelly Bergen, who was a colleague of mine at this kind of crappy temp job that I had. Um, and she, uh, she told me to get on Tumblr because she kind of was on Tumblr all day and I was really bored. I, I was just didn't know what to do with my time because I was definitely not doing any work that I was supposed to be doing. And uh, so I Tumblr Tumblr was like this gateway into the internet for me. And I was a big Tumblr head really? back in the day. Yeah. What I was, was like, your Tumblr? Uh, I forget what it was called, but when I was like, a, I think it was, I was, you know, a teenager and I was uh, shamefully very much into streetwear. And oh so I was like on like streetwear tumblers and stuff, I but it was cool. Tumblr. There was like music stuff. People discovered like Frank Ocean in the weekend there. Like it was a good community. Oh yeah. It was awesome. It was basically like, I, I felt like, you know, there's that scene in eighth grade when she like gets on the internet and everything yeah. like <laughs> yeah. changes. Like I, I felt like that, like suddenly this whole world had opened up and there was so much that was happening. And I was like, Whoa. And I, I looked for writing about it and I didn't like anyone's writing about it. Katie Natopoulos, um, who I always wanted to be basically, um, was this amazing internet sort of reporter. Back she's then. at Buzzfeed, right? She's at Buzzfeed still. Right. Yeah. So she was kind of writing some stuff and I write, I liked a lot of other tumblers, but I hated the way that people wrote about the internet. Um, when I was pretty into Tumblr, I had like dozens of tumblers. A lot of other people that I met through Tumblr were YouTubers and the way that the media was writing about YouTubers, I just was making me angry. <laughs> I was like, because I'm it was gonna... like dismissive or it was so dismissive and so condescending, so right. condescending there, you know, this was, this was in the early days of YouTuber world in the early 2010s. And it just was seen as this like silly thing that could never really compete with entertainment and especially in digital media too. I felt like, you know, 
there was this shift happening in digital media and people weren't taking social media seriously. So I, you know, I didn't even think I could write about it because I'm not a great writer. And so I was like, oh, I probably can't write about it, but I can be, you know, I can sort of make people care about this stuff. So I got, that's how I got into, you know, being a social media editor, uh, which was a new job at the time. Um, and basically convincing companies to, to care about these things and, and, you know, set up a Facebook page or register a Twitter account or teaching other journalists how, you know, I wrote the social media guidelines um, for like multiple media organizations. Uh, and then I, you know, I didn't really consider being a reporter until I met a reporter. I had never, I've never really met a reporter. And um, I met, um, I met a, a reporter at the time who was at the New York Times and was not that much older. I think we're around the same age. And I was like, okay, if this person can be a reporter at the New York Times, like I should, I should be a reporter at the New York Times. Because <laughs> um, I, and it just kind of like made me start writing more like right. I just was like oh it doesn't seem like you I don't can know, do it, it was, yeah there was possible. like somebody like my age I guess that was at this like legacy place mm. um which is funny because you know he was definitely the exception but um yeah so I started writing and I mostly wrote for like the daily dot and on my own tumblers and these digital media sites I wrote for mike.com it was that whole digital media boom um of like right. millennial which people always call people will always said my beat was synonymous with millennials until like two years ago Oh, now annoy you. I write about People Gen Z. Well, yeah, now it's Gen yeah. Z, I guess, right? It's not, it's not either. I mean, I write right. about like a lot of parent groups and internet. It's, it's like, uh, it's such a misunderstanding that the internet is only affects young people. I'm like, right. how do you, like, everyone's see... online now. Also, like, how do you say something like that after like January 6th and like all of these like major yeah. events? Um, so anyway, but you, you've often said that people don't, really understand the beat or, or they have trouble. Sometimes you have to convince them that it's worthy of coverage. Yes. Did you run into that problem at the times once you got there? Was that ever an issue at the times? Uh, definitely not under Corey. Uh, Corey Sika was running the style section when I joined and former Gawker, right? Yeah. I mean, Corey just understands it more than anyone. So right. he, I never, ever, ever like for a second, encountered that under Corey um, and definitely not under Pluing either, who was the tech editor. Like she, she always understood it from the get-go and really um, was like, could not have gotten more. I wouldn't say that about, you know, certain management at the times, but definitely the editors that I worked for implicitly understood it. And what about the readers? Did you find that you were like having to like spoon <laughs> yeah. feed them like news but about that's creators? Always, yes, that is every single right. place I work. I mean, at, at the Atlantic, I got the same email. I, everywhere I work, there's like two versions of, of emails that I get. And I try to respond to almost every email. I read every message I get um, pretty much. And it's either people that are like genuinely like interested and want to know more like, oh, wow, like you told me something or that's weird. Or it's people like, incensed that I'm writing about this like who take why it personally are you, yeah like why are you I can't believe you know that, that the you know illustrious uh you know New York Times or Atlantic or wherever would deem to publish something about TikTok you know um and those people I just kind of am like thanks for the feedback but whatever <laughs> yeah, well I, I do you respond to like all hate mail uh no I don't respond to hate mail but okay. but sometimes people are like I mean a lot of people take issue with me calling myself a tech reporter, not as much now, but definitely pre 2020. Um, hmm. There was just a lot of, a lot of Silicon Valley people that never took my, and still to this day, well, now they've been forced to take my beat seriously, but they would really 
shit on me and, and subtweet me and kind of hate on me. And they hated that I called myself a tech reporter because they were like, tech is you know serious. And she's not talking about you know, the iPhones. And, and it was funny because then after 2020, when they all were sort of sort of decided to embrace the creator economy, suddenly it's like, before it was like, oh, Taylor just writes about influencers and online creators. That's not real tech. And then now you see people at Andreessen Horowitz, like the creator economy, I'm a creator economy investor. It's like, okay. Well, so. now it's, now it's lucrative. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Anyway, now, everyone comes around. <laughs> right. That's true. Now the, the internet, as we know, is a, it's a disgusting cesspool for a, <laughs> yeah. a lot of it is. You're covering really fascinating and kind of unseen corners of it. Has that ever gotten ugly in terms of harassment and stuff like that? Of I know this course. is something you've spoken out about before. <laughs> well, you mentioned my, one of my favorite topics. Um, so <laughs> first of all, means. I, you know, I've, I've, I was getting piled on back in Tumblr days. Like I had right. PewDiePie has made a video about me. Like I've, or I was in a video about him where he did a whole segment. He pulled up my Twitter account. This is the most followed YouTuber of all time. Uh, the YouTubers make shit about me. Like I cover influencers. So I have an ex- like insanely high capacity threshold for like drama and controversy. Um, But what I went through, you know, at the times was something very different where it was this like super politicized type of attack um, aimed at really like silencing the the press. Um, Mm. So, you know, obviously Tucker Carlson famously did a bunch of segments about me um, and I received this you know, I don't even like to call it harassment because harassment I can kind of deal with. It was a smear. It's a smear campaign. It's like a coordinated smear campaign to discredit me um, and, and any, and, and sort of any target that they have. And the times was just woefully unprepared for that and remain completely unprepared for that. And, and as do most legacy news organizations. And so I feel like, you know, witnessing that and seeing it from the inside made me be like, okay, I'm going to change media because I need to like make the media industry understand this just in the way that I help them understand what influencers are. Like I need them all to understand this because like, it's really like starting to, it's, I mean, not starting it. It was, it's been a thing for a while. And you would think that media companies would have learned these lessons with Gamergate, but they absolutely have not learned any of these lessons. So I'm like really, really adamant about, um, helping them understand it. Well, the, the reason I bring it up is because I think it, it, when you work in media, people, people that also work in media have certain standards that they have to live up to. And whereas when you're dealing with, you know, people on YouTube, I feel like they, they could put up a crazy photo of you and just personally insult you. And the only person that really does that in the media is Tucker Carlson famously yeah. will put up like terrible looking photos of someone and then insult them personally for an entire segment. Was that, was the Tucker Carlson segment more intense than, than well, like getting harassment here's elsewhere? Here's what's different, right? Like, I mean, I had YouTubers, there's videos that think if you search my name, one of the main videos that comes up says that I'm like a pedophile and, and all these crazy things, right? Like I'm used to dealing with that, with YouTubers. Um, and that's that's, because you're reporting on younger because I write generations, it, right? Well, and also because they're they're sort of right they want to <laughs> they want a dog whistle to QAnon type right. of people, which right. by the way Tucker did on his segment as well. That's that's sort of a tactic that they use. Um, and I, I guess my feeling is like with YouTubers and stuff, I I don't think that the media that the media organizations take it seriously at all. So they don't understand how. Um, people get information from YouTube. So they don't take YouTubers threats or attacks seriously. So that's a problem, I guess. Well, let me actually think how to explain this. Um, I'm, I'm fine with 
like attacks on my work or whatever, or calling me ugly or whatever, you know, YouTuber, YouTubers make a lot of stupid videos about me and that's fine. But mm. what, what's happening right now is that um, bad faith actors, specifically sort of radicalized groups have recognized that the way to discredit a company like the New York Times is to discredit their most high profile, what they call sort of vulnerable reporters, often women and people of color. And by discrediting and smearing those reporters, you're sort of hurting the reputation of the Times, right? But but the Times and, and the Times doesn't and, and all of these media organizations don't understand that they kind of see it as, oh, well, that's just your reputation. That's just your Google results. You know, sorry that your Google results imply that you're a pedophile, but that's just your personal problem. Right. Mm. And so anyway, I, I guess like I, I they don't take things like Tucker, like you said, he's almost like acts like a YouTuber on Fox News. Right. Um, I think it's it's allowed them to maybe a little bit understand the nature of these smear campaigns a little bit better um or at least see it like at least recognize it for a while it's like oh just ignore that that's on youtube never mind that youtube is the number one search engine for young people right like right. oh who cares right um but but when tucker was coming after me at, at least it kind of i think media companies were like oh well at least we have to acknowledge this but you know of course they still don't do anything about it fundamentally right. I was reading about Tucker's um, when he when he did that segment about you last year, and the Times issued a statement condemning it and saying, you know, this. Well, is- he did three three or four segments about there me. Three last or four year. segments. Yeah, he did multiple. I think it was maybe it was three. It was definitely two or three where he mentioned me, and then he did one last fall, and then he did two at least two earlier. I right. Can't if it was two or three. But yeah. Do you think do you think that the that organizations are getting a little bit better at understanding that these things are not to be taken seriously? Do you think the organizations are getting better at it at being no. able to anticipate that this is something that happens? Not even remotely. And in fact, right. they're just as much blaming the reporters. I mean, it's just it's they're quieter about it, right? Like they're not going to necessarily maybe do that publicly, but certainly that's what they're doing. I mean, they stigmatize you, they blame you, they um punish you. I mean, they don't support you in any meaningful way. And I don't give a shit about a statement on Twitter, to be honest, if I'm dealing with something like this, what I care is somebody helping manage this like smear campaign and, and recognizing that this is a, this is hurting my reputation. Like I always say, you know, I mean, my reputation, like pre the times and the times is a very politicized institution in the way that it's viewed, right? Like nobody would have ever called me like controversial. Like, I think people were like, oh, she's just over there covering YouTubers or whatever, right? Like, but it's being at this legacy institution, suddenly I'm like painted with that brush because I work there. And yet, you know, they're not doing enough to protect them. And I don't want to single out the times because I actually think this is a problem across the media. Right. Like, right. Um, because I, I just think that these companies don't really know how to deal with attacks like this. They don't know they what they should be doing is doing reputation management for reporters and making sure that you know that 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 your Google results are not accessible, making sure that they support you privately as well as publicly, um, and not giving credence to bad faith actors. But they continually give credence to bad faith actors. So, has it gotten any easier to deal with? harassment online as you've gotten more experience with it because I remember well, when I was a young reporter I first got I when I first got like attacked on Twitter it was a deeply <laughs> troubling experience for me and I haven't experienced like, anything near what, what you have but it, is it something that gets easier as, as you get more experience with it or is I know. it 
I thought Jake Paul fans like doxing me would be the worst. And it's so much worse than that. And oh, I God. dealt with, you know, I covered like extremism um, and, and, and the election in 2016. Like I've covered a lot of like really intense things, but never dealt with this like smear campaign. And that's what's different. Like I kind of always feel like harassment. I've developed this like incredibly thick skin in terms of like people telling me to kill myself. I'm like, okay, whatever. Like I see that every day on Instagram at this point, but, um, but, but what it's really hard to deal with is this like reframing of your life through the media that that's hard. Like you being Mm -hmm. painted as controversial and these narratives about you, like kind of gaining hold in the right-wing press, like that's a little bit harder to deal with. I did not deal with the things great. I mean, I was, I had a really hard time. Um, and I, I wish that I had done certain things differently for sure. So definitely, yeah, I definitely, you know, learned some lessons, but right. I also think I was really, um, you know, cut off at the legs by, by the, the, the times is social media, uh, policy where, you know, a lot, there was several times where me not being able to respond to things in real time actually made the situation way worse. Um, one time I confused the two founders of Andreessen Horowitz in a single tweet that I deleted immediately. I just confused, they're both old bald white men. And I confused one for the other. Instead of being able to explain that, I was told you cannot speak of this, right? And so it just allowed the the these sort of bad faith actors to set this narrative about me um, that that the the right wing press ran with, and that ended up being really harmful. And and sort of even to this day, I have people being like, "Remember when you did this?" And I'm like, "Well, no, actually, that didn't happen." But right. I couldn't say anything at the time. And so I think you know. I think what media companies need to realize is not saying anything is actually worse. Like not acknowledging these smear campaigns allows bad faith actors to run rampant and do whatever they want. So you need to counter them and you need to counter them in a smart way. That does not mean replying to people on Twitter, which I totally think is the least productive thing you can do, but, (laughs) um, but you know, you need to have a, a strategy for this. Right. And it's true that very often an acknowledgement that you've deleted something and corrected it is very often just ends it right there. And if you're being told you can't actually do that, that could be a problem. It could fester even more. Yeah. Um, You can't clarify it. You can't. And then you see your reputation, like you see what happens to your reputation when you're kind of pulled into this. And it's Mm -hmm. really frustrating. (laughs) Now that is part of what people say a lot about the internal drama at the New York times. There's that there's this like sort of clamp down on social media use. There's also, you know, people like Barry Weiss claiming that there's a divide between the woke young reporters and the old guard um, and whether or not that that is true to any extent. Did, did you find the times to be a particularly dramatic place? No, it's like the least dramatic place ever. <laughs> it's so funny because like stuff that would happen, that was like the most normal, boring thing ever. You'd like read in some you know, Daily Beast article or something like, oh, drama. Internal clashes. What? Like, (laughs) it's literally the most like benign workplace. And most, I mean, I I cannot, like most of the people there, especially my, like my editors, my direct editors um, were just like so wonderful and normal and just talented and brilliant. And yeah, it's just funny to like work at a place like that where you're like, oh my God. Like, do you guys know what was happening at mike.com? Because like, if you wanted some drama, like this is, this is not, you know, not it, (laughs) not it. Now, uh, speaking of, of, uh, Tucker Carlson, obviously cable news, uh, is something that we cover a lot at media and it's known to have a mostly older audience. I'm wondering though, do you see any overlap between 
the the sort of younger generations um, that you're uh, often reporting on and the cable news world, are they aware of what's going on on cable? Do they care about it at all? Or are they just completely not involved? No, it's pretty irrelevant. Um, yeah. Maybe like Fox a little bit to the extent that they just set the agenda for like right. what goes on stuff. But um, no, not at all. I mean, YouTube, YouTube is cable news. Like all of those tropes from cable news and like the kind of partisan you know, talk, like sort of just ranting about things. Like it's all, it's just YouTube now. I was shocked. So I stumbled into the YouTube partisan news world recently where it's a sort of low budget set with a guy doing liberal news coverage and doing like commentary and stuff. And it's, it's crazy because it's really low budget. It's people you've never heard of before, but they have 3 million followers and each of their videos is getting a million views. And commentary channels are even less. I mean, they have this, I, I want to write more about this and Kat Tenbarge is by far and away the expert on all of this at NBC, but, you know, commentary channels have this air of, of, of sort of journalistic, um, commentary channels have this like journalistic air and they present things as if they've done reporting. Right. But none of it's reported. It's completely like they don't have any kind of like editorial or ethical standards. So it's just like, but but the consumers, like these young consumers, certainly have zero media literacy. I mean, I cannot explain how little media literacy young people have. It's kind of terrifying. It is terrifying. Yeah. And what I also find fascinating about it is that the the sort of complete saturation of media of culture of even celebrity has like eroded the position of the, the, the figures that we, we used to have. There, there was more media gatekeeping. You had major figures that everyone cared about. And now celebrity and news and advertising and influencing has become really micro. It's almost, it's like the, the you know, 15 minutes of fame culture. Do you think that that dynamic has take it, completely taken over what youth is consuming these days? And is that the future of it? And forgive I mean, me for the incredibly broad question. No, that's <laughs> undeniably the future. Every right. year someone asks me like, is this the peak of like influencer content creator worlds? And I'm like, media is not going to get like less digital, right? Or right. like, like it's, these are, these are shifts that have, that I've been writing about myself for over a decade. Um, so I don't think it's necessarily, you know, maybe things will become less distributed in the sense that individual creators might like collaborate with each other or form collectives, but it's, you're not going to see another like legacy media company, like the times kind of emerge from nothing. Um, right. So I do think it's getting more distributed and, and in a lot of ways, that's a good thing. Like, I think I, I was such a pro proponent of that shift in the sense that like, there's room for coverage that these big places didn't have and and it can be more targeted you can cover these niche issues right like there's content creators that just speak to very niche subject areas and are experts and you know that's really valuable to have that kind of outlet um but yeah it's you don't have like a mass media culture there's no like barbara walters or whatever i mean there's people right. like hassan piker probably um that are like big influential figures in news um mm -hmm. but even then like you're, they're not going to reach like 80 million people every night through right. CBS or whatever. Right. It's not Walter Cronkite anymore. And yeah, did, no. did you find that you were able to, like, I remember when you were at the Times and you were reporting all of this stuff that the Times hasn't previously reported on, did you find that you were getting like a younger audience to start reading the New York Times? I mean, I know they're not going to like oh, yeah. bust open the print paper, but <laughs> was it kind of funny to have these really young people that would never ordinarily open up the Times start reading it? 
yeah, I mean, my audience is very young and I think that's why the times was so interested in recruiting me, um, and covering this area. I mean, the thing is, if you want any kind of, um, authority in this space, you have to cover it and you have to cover it well. Um, and you have to kind of be with, like, you have to be forward thinking in the way that you cover things and how you operate as a newsroom, right? Like you have to, you have, you have, you can't just be like, oh, we're writing about TikTok now. So maybe young people will pay attention to us. It's like, no, how are you framing those articles? What stories are you doing? And also how are you, you know, what, what like liberties are you giving the reporter that actually covers it? Right. Mm -hmm. Like, are you allowing them to talk about it, to contextualize it on it, to go on YouTubers channels or whatever, you know? So, um, yeah, but, but again, like I had the privilege to work with Corey and Pui Wing and these people at the times that like are so like get it more than anyone else in the world. So, um, that was good. When it comes to the, the platforms that younger people are on, I know, everyone that works in the media business is on Twitter. I know. Is that like an older platform now? Like are, yeah, are like young people on Twitter? Or are they just on TikTok and YouTube and Instagram? Well, I mean, there are young people on Twitter, but it's kind of terrifying. Like the chokehold that Twitter has on the media because it's crazy. It is crazy. I mean, it's just, I always joke that like, you know, my, the bosses at the New York times would never know about anything unless it was on Twitter. It's like, <laughs> if it wasn't on Twitter, they were, they weren't like, you know, in terms of like my own stuff, like if I, you know, if I don't tweet, like it's like things aren't happening. Um, meanwhile, you have like YouTube and TikTok and everything. Um, but I, I mean, I think TikTok obviously is where like you see narratives emerging and they're spilling over to Twitter. Um, I think it's like, I mean, a good example of this is something like the West Elm Caleb story, right. Where like that, that was such a TikTok native story, right. But then you had these media companies suddenly trying to hop on it and not knowing what to do and no voices of reason in a lot of ways, because it's all like Twitter people trying to interpret this trend. And that's how you got something like house beautiful, um, you know, printing this man's full name and LinkedIn, and then trying to sell affiliate links off a harassment campaign. I was like, Oh my God, I'm losing. Did he ever just to uh, give our audience a little background on who West Elm Caleb is. Could you explain who he was basically this man in New York who was kind of known for being terrible to people that he dated and like ghosting them. Um, he was this like prolific Tinder user that had matched with many women in New York. And because of different things like TikTok pulling your contact lists and showing you videos, people affiliated with you, the women that he was dating all kind of connected with each other and made videos about it. That ended up blowing up into a full-fledged like harassment and attack campaign against. So it was, it was algorithmic how they all came together. Yeah. And the fact that like, I think they were all in this one man's phone and so much of what's determined like what you're shown on TikTok is like, if you and I have a similar contact, I'm much more likely to be shown your video. Right. You have an enormous following on TikTok, right? I have like a little over half a million. That's a lot of followers. Is, yeah, but I have followers kind of everywhere. They're Do you all... like the community on TikTok? Are you like, is it a yeah. good, healthy community or is it Oh sort my God, of... healthy community? No, no. What what platform is healthy? Um, That's true. I think, I think, you know, the one thing I'll say about Twitter that I, that I think TikTok needs is there are a lot of like smart intellectual people on Twitter and, mm. and journalists for better or worse. Um, TikTok is kind of like, uh, you know, it's like mice running the show or something. There's some expression. What is it? Um, I don't know. It's like, it's like a circus being run by, you know, 
clowns or something clowns. like there's no <laughs> there's no like oversight there's no right. like person voice of reason and so these things just like spiral out of control I always say or what did I I, I always say I tweeted this once um which is like TikTok is TikTok is kind of like YouTube commentary drama channel culture combined with Twitter and that is a very dangerous and toxic mix right right now your new book, upcoming book, goes into all of this. It's called Extremely, on- Extremely Online, Gen Z, The Rise of Influencers and the Creation of a New American Dream. Uh, what have you learned writing the book? I know my book is mostly about the rise of this industry. So it's like from 2005-ish to now, like how did this become a thing? You know, right. and there was so much conversation in 2020 of like, oh my God, content creators making a living. And it's like, well, here's how this industry emerged from bloggers to YouTubers, to Viners, to Musical.ly stars. And like how, yeah, how the, how the platforms evolved and how the people evolved with it. Um, it's, it's what I've learned is like, none of it's, I mean, it's kind of like me ranting a little bit being like, remember, (laughs) remember in 2014 or remember grumpy cat, uh, remember when he got an agent. Um, but it, but I think it, I think it's really helpful for people to have this background because I think like a lot of these lessons that seem really new are actually lessons that were learned previously on other platforms. And we've had like reckonings over these things before. And so I think hopefully people will read my book and be like, Oh, okay. Like start to recognize these patterns and also call for these like more accountability from these platforms, which are always operating, you know, they're always optimizing for engagement over anything else. Right. Now you, you are based in Los Angeles, right? These days. I assume you're not moving to Washington DC for for the Washington post. (laughs) Why LA? Is it the best perch from which to report on the stuff that you want to report on? Yeah. I mean, I think if you think of sort of like a modern day manifestation of the internet, especially the internet in the 2010s, it's LA, like the platforms I cover from TikTok, you know, to Snapchat or things like that are all based in LA. The people that I deal with at YouTube in terms of the creator partnerships, people are all in LA, Instagram people I deal with are in LA. And also just the agents, the managers, the industry that I cover most, which is the online creator industry is pretty pretty skewed towards, I mean, it's very heavily skewed toward LA. There's been a right. little bit of like, oh, there's NYC TikTokers now, but there hype houses in New York now. No, there okay, was good. one that the Gotham house tried to be one, but it was technically in New Jersey. And I don't know. Oof, that sounds like a scandal. It's like, <laughs> yeah. It, um, you know, content houses also have been a thing. I mean, the first content house was in 2009 um, with a bunch of YouTubers called the station. And it's just LA is still the nexus of power when you think about that version of the internet. I think a lot of people would, a lot of older people would look at the the trends that you're covering and find them a little spooky, a little like Black Mirror-y. Are you optimistic about where tech culture is headed or does it scare you a little bit? And it can be both. Well, it yeah, it is a little bit of both. I I like the Black Mirror. Black Mirror is like obviously such an iconic show. Um, I'm, 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 I'm definitely like a tech optimist in the sense that like I believe in a better world through technology. And I like want I write about it because I love it. And because I feel like, I feel like my life was like saved by being online in a lot of ways. Like I think about my life pre 2009 and post Tumblr. And I, I, I just can't imagine anything without it. Like I am very, you know, grateful for sort of like 
a lot of the tech that's been developed, but obviously like we're in such a dark time. So I'm pretty not optimistic about like Silicon Valley people. If Silicon Valley people are controlling the future, I'm not optimistic. But if people that care about things like equality and um, stuff like that, you know, are sort of defining the future and, and taking control of technology. I think it's better. It's been a little depressing to watch what's going on with like the crypto and NFT stuff because- Well, what's your, what's your beef with uh, Silicon Valley people? I obviously have a natural disdain for them because like <laughs> they say really stupid things and wear all birds, but what what is your problem with them? Well, I guess, and I'll, I say this broadly because there's so many people that I absolutely love that are amazing in Silicon yeah. Valley. I guess I what I mean is these like stereotypical like men, VC people. So I grew up, I grew up outside New York city in this town that was absolutely dominated by finance culture in the two thousands. Um, and in Connecticut, yeah, it's, I mean, everything was about finance and money and greed. And as somebody that was very removed from that and didn't have parents in that industry or anything like that, I just, those people that when the financial crisis came, I was like, Oh my God, finally, like we can be done with these types of horrible people. And then I have I, bad news for you, Taylor. <laughs> I know. I know. And then, and then it's funny. Cause when I started covering tech, I was like, Oh my God, Silicon Valley, like, wow, they're so cool and forward thinking. And it's not like these finance bros. And of course it is, it is literally just that sort of culture of, um, greed is good. Money is above everything else and, um, screw the little guy and all that. And, um, so it's, so that's, yeah, I guess that's my like beef is, is always with these powerful people that that don't seem to care about others and right I have my last question did you know that when you search at least when I search Taylor Lorenz on Google one of the suggested questions that comes up is what does Taylor Lorenz do all day and that's people keep asking me to make a TikTok about this (laughs) that might be why then um it's a very silly silly question because you're a very prolific reporter but I would actually like to know what your reporting process is like when you're not writing the book like take me through a day in the life of, of Taylor Lorenz tech reporter. Yeah. It's so funny that that's on my Google. That's been on my Google results for years. Um, and I, I like, I don't understand why. Cause I'm like, it's not a mystery. I'm on the internet all day. If you want to know what I'm up to Just literally my Twitter check, and TikTok. check my yeah, Instagram story. Um, I mean, I, I am on calls like 24 seven. I talk all day to people. I kind of, I, I work from bed as I, uh, have written about, um, you know, since we're not in the office, um, I, I just kind of look for stories. I I would say probably like maybe 50% of my time is just like consuming content and digesting things and like saving things. I famously kind of like, like every single thing I see just to have like a catalog, um, of everything that I've seen. And then I try and pull out interesting things or just, I'm like, Oh, that's interesting. I want to write about that. Or that reminds me of that. And then once I get a story, um, I just, it's like, I like gnaw away at it until it's a thing. Like I'll just, I mean, I just get like very single-minded. I'll stay up until like 5 a.m. working on something just to like get it done. So I, yeah, I just I take phone calls and to transcribe interviews and do the same thing that literally everyone else does. <laughs> There's no <laughs> secret sauce. It's literally just basic reporting. Taylor Renz, thanks so much for coming on the show. Yeah, thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Interview. Please subscribe to The Interview on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And check out coverage of my conversation with Taylor Lorenz on Mediaite.com.